This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Sensual. Hmm. A good and evocative word, yes? How do you see it being spelled? Okay, now try it this way. S-C-E-N-T-U-L. Today we're talking about all things fragrant plants and flowers with Ken Drews in his 20th book, The Sensual Garden. As he writes, In The Sensual Garden, I reveal a world of sensory experience to surprise and delight every gardener. This wholly original survey of botanical fragrance, how to sample it, design for it, revel in it, and even capture it, offers detailed descriptions of the sense of hundreds of vividly illustrated perennial flowers, herbs, shrubs, and trees. Chapters in the book discuss how and why plants produce fragrances, how our sense of smell works, how perfumers capture floral scents, how plants communicate with each other. As in a previous book, Natural Companions, photographer Ellen Hoverkamp contributes vivid and artful botanical photographs to meet plants close up and personal. In this time leading up to the dreaming space of winter dormancy here in the Northern Hemisphere, Ken joins us today from his home and garden island in a river in New Jersey. Welcome, Ken. Oh, thank you, Jennifer, for that wonderful introduction, and I'm very glad to be speaking with you. As am I, and I just have been reveling in your glorious new book. So let's start with you as a gardener. For listeners who, very few of whom may not have heard of you uh, before, <laughs> describe what you do in relation to plants. You're, you're a writer, you're a gardener, you're a thinker. Tell us what your current relationship and plant garden practice looks like, Ken. I'm a plant nerd. And I, there's so many things to say to that. I'm looking out at the garden right now and it's, it's raining and we really need rain, believe it or not. But uh, this place where I live is a rainforest in the northwest corner of New Jersey. And last year we had 50 inches of rain. And I'm thinking about you when I'm saying that because in Northern California, it's dry. Mm. But I, I love plants. I love to watch them grow. I love to propagate them. They turn me on. And there seems to always be something I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> so true, so true, right? So your home garden there, how long have you been there and how big is it, your garden, in this northeastern rainforest? Well, it's it started as a weekend place and I've been here full time for about five years, mm -hmm. uh, but I've been on this property for about 30 years and it's an island in a river. And people don't really realize that because it's just one lane bridge takes you onto the island and one lane bridge takes you off. And my property is the only property on the island and the house is the only house on the island. And the property is a little over five acres, but about two and a half acres of that is on the island and in cultivation, one might say. Mm -hmm. What do you grow there? Is it an ornamental garden? Is it an edible garden? Is it both? 
It's an ornamental garden because since it's a, an island in a river, it's a valley and it's mostly shady. I cannot grow a tomato yeah. <laughs> and I, and roses don't look so good. I try, uh, but the, the day light length is short because there's a ridge with trees on one side and a ridge with trees on the other. And what is the river your island is situated in? It's called the Pollenskill. Uh, rivers in this part of the country are often called kills, which is from a Dutch word. So it's the Pollenskill. Uh, now it's one word. And it's part of the largest watershed that goes into the Delaware River. But at this part of it, which is close to the beginning, it's like a big stream. Mm -hmm. You are there with? I am here with a part-time person, uh, Louis Bauer, who is my husband, and he's the director of horticulture at Wave Hill, the public garden in the Bronx, New York. And he used to live here full-time when I was living here part-time, and then he got the Wave Hill job, so he has an apartment in the Bronx, and now he's here only on weekends, so we've we've switched. Okay. And so I'm imagining you are partners in the garden as well. Is that true? Yes. That, that, <laughs> we could talk about that for 45 minutes. <laughs> when you say you're in a rainforest, describe the the makeup of the forest that you're in and that you have created this garden in? Well, the area is a hardwood forest. Uh, there's hickory and oak and pine. And because I'm on this island, I have all sorts of plant communities and habitat types in the area. So there's a riparian type, habitat type. There's floodplain, which is what my garden is actually a floodplain. Uh, and it, it's very complex. So part part of the garden in one area, I thought I would have a native plant garden, and I wanted to do local plants, plants that were indigenous to a 10-mile radius, which sounds very restrictive, but it's so rich here that I have trillium and ginger mm -hmm. and all the many different kinds of plants because it is so complex and, and interesting. Yeah. But we do get a lot of rain, a lot of rain. And uh, most of the garden is sand because it, as being a floodplain, it's just what the river delivered. Mm -hmm. And the river is a two-edged sword, but that's an, uh, yet another story because right. it does flood sometimes. But uh, it can be underwater or have four inches of rain and then two days later be dry as dust. Uh, so the plants don't love it, but the woody plants kind of do like it. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the trees have made it to the water table. So trees do very well. Shrubs do okay. They do pretty well. Herbaceous plants, a lot of perennials think they're annuals. Yeah. Because of reading The Sensual Garden and then picturing where you are, I'm smelling things as I'm as I'm talking to you and as you are sharing um, what is around you and even the rain coming down right now, Ken. Yeah. And you and you're making me think if I had to say one word, it is green. Green. It's yeah. very green here. Again, just a tiny bit before we jump into the sensual garden. How did you come to be be a gardener? How did you come to be a plants person? Were you raised and and were you born that way? Did it Tell us about your 
early influences of plants and places and people. Interesting, born that way. You know, I, uh, a lot of people say that they learned to garden at their grandmother's knee, and I mm. never knew any of my grandmother, either of my grandmothers. My mother sometimes claimed to have inspired me, but I, I don't know where that came from because <laughs> I don't remember that. But I always played in the dirt and was always interested in the critters and the insects. And I could just I could just move dirt around for hours when I was a little boy. And I think I was very interested in growing things and living things. And in a way, sculpture, I think I, I've always had, I've always liked the idea of carving up things and building things in clay and sculpting in plants. And I remember when I was quite young, I rescued a tulip poplar that had, it started to grow in the gutter and it fell out and I brought it home and planted it. And uh, I saw it a while back and it's a tree. <laughs> so I think, you know, it's like res the kid who rescues the baby bird and the, and the baby bunnies and I rescued the baby plant. Yeah. yeah. So you grow up from being a plant rescuer and you go on to become a very well-known garden writer. Tell us about the journey from one place to the next a little bit. Well, when I was a teenager, I started to get interested in indoor plants because that was very popular way back then. And, and when I, I went to college at Rhode Island School of Design, and then I discovered a 100-year-old greenhouse called Logie's Greenhouses yeah. in Danielson, Connecticut. And I just, I couldn't get enough. And I started growing indoor plants, and then I had an indoor jungle. I always drew pictures, and I drew pictures of plants. And I went, at school, I, I actually graduated as a filmmaker, but I did that for a short time, got cured. And then I went back to illustration, to drawing, and I illustrated uh, a column for House Beautiful magazine, and I could do a drawing, and it would take a week, and I would get about $75. And then I thought, you know, I could take a photograph or 10 or 30 in the same time it takes me to do a drawing. So I started to take photographs and photograph gardens. And then the person who was the garden editor said, why don't you take over the column? Because we'd have to come up with the idea for the illustration before the text was written. So I was virtually writing the text. And then I started writing the text. Then I don't remember exactly how I got into doing illustrated books, but that was about 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And doing an illustrated book is a lot like making a movie in a, in a way, only there's fewer people and a whole lot less money. Yeah. <laughs> True that. <laughs> and I've written for almost every shelter and gardening magazine, mm -hmm. of which there used to be many. Yeah. And I wrote for a while for the New York Times, which was a great joy. And uh, I started doing the books because I got to have a little more control of the product or the result and tried to share my philosophy. But I, I think in a way, I'm interrupting myself, but I, I think I, I've always been in a way a journalist. Hmm. And when I, when I take on a topic, for example, propagation, I did a book on propagation yep. and I wanted to know more about making more plants. And it's when I came to this garden place, I needed plants. 
and I wasn't very good at all of it, and I didn't know everything about it. So I, I went off and I interviewed lots of people, and then I tried usually three or five ways of doing something, and the way that worked best was the way that I wrote about and put in that book. Yeah. It's a fantastic process, isn't it, wherein we we learn and teach ourselves in the process of sharing that forward, whether that's in plants themselves, in writing about them, in photographing them, in being artistic with them. But then people think we're experts. <laughs> and, and thankfully, we gardeners know better. Like you can, it's very, very, very difficult to be a real expert in this plant world because we can know a lot, but there's, as you said right in the beginning, there's always more to learn. There's always another way, another method, another plant. Another plant. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today we're talking about all things fragrant plants and flowers with Ken Drews in his book, The Sensual Garden. Stay with us for more conversation with Ken right after the break. Hey, we're a week past Thanksgiving, a conflicted and beautiful and layered date and history to be sure. I explored some of this in my most recent A View From Here Views letter. It was one of those explorations that came to me as I rambled, and there was no sitting still until the ideas and the experience that led to the ideas came out of me and were on the page, shared. If you didn't have a chance to read it, and I hope you did, I'd love your thoughts on these things, on the force and truth that we grow each other, in every word, slight physical or mental adjustment to make space for another, or not, in every deed and intention, we grow each other. And all of that complexity notwithstanding, the conversation with Ross Gay on Thanksgiving Day keeps resounding in my ears and heart. These, our gardens, are laboratories of wonder and structures and gestures of care in our lives, in the world. I consider the work of cultivating place as much as my very own garden to be a structure of care in this world. And with that in mind, with the end of the year and the end of the decade upon us, I thank each of you who's a sustaining member of this community. Some of you at $10 a month, some of you at $20 a month or more. You are deeply appreciated for helping us to make Cultivating Place a reality each and every week, year round. For those of you who value these conversations in your gardening week or month or year, I invite you to consider taking part as a year-end offering and making a donation of any size, small or large, by following the links at the top right-hand corner of any page at cultivatingplace.com. Together, we grow this work and this world. And that right there is strong medicine, good seeds, and forward-looking action. So thank you. And now, back to our conversation with Ken Drews on all things sensual in the garden. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. 
Ken Drews is a well-known horticulturist, an award-winning author and photographer. His books range from shade plants to naturalist gardens to propagating and combining plants. We're back now with him describing his purpose and process for exploring the sensual garden. I thought before I started to write this book that with my last book, I thought, well, I'm done. I don't need to write it. I can't believe I did it again. And I'm saying that to myself out loud because I can't imagine I'm ever going to do it again. But you never know. <laughs> you never know. But uh, I, when I meet any plant, one of the first things I do is smell it. Yeah. Uh, after checking for a bee, right. in the case of some flowers, uh, and often even with leaves, I'll, I'll just rub a leaf and, and see what it smells like. And I've been doing that, as you said, all my life. And when a flower doesn't have a fragrance, to me, it's it's like there's something missing or something lacking. Because mm. I, I like all the dimensions and scent to me is, it's paramount. Yeah, it is. And I, I think it is for a, gr- a good many of us. And so it is always amazing to me when you will have, you know, roses or even camellias, uh, who, which I love the form of, but... When I realized there were a couple of fragrant ones, I'm like, those are the ones I want. And flowers without fragrance don't make full sense to to me. Tell us, why did this book come together for you right now? What what was the catalyst that kind of pushed you into saying, no, I am going to write this book, and and here's why? Well, I did a book with Ellen Hoverkamp, who does the marvelous scans. She mm. puts flowers she does all, all different kinds of things. But with me, uh, we did a book together two books ago called Natural Companions. And she places flowers on a flatbed scanner. And I know you know that because you're looking at them. Mm-hmm. And builds up these images with flowers. And she's so good at it. Mm. And that book has been very successful. And I, th- I was thinking about doing another book with her. And her images are evocative of sensuality mm-hmm. and three-dimensionality. It just came to me. I love fragrance. I've never written that much about it. But also, I think something that bothered me was reading catalogs and reading online when I want to know if a plant smells, it says fragrant. But that doesn't tell me if it smells like a ginkgo <laughs> or right. a skunk cabbage <laughs> or if it smells like jasmine or if it has a sweet smell or if it has a pungent smell. It just doesn't tell me enough. So I started looking in other books and also on catalogs and online. And if you find anything, it says sweet. It hardly ever tells you what the fragrance is like. Yeah. And I thought, can I do this? Can I describe the fragrances of some of my favorite plants or the flowers and leaves that turn me on? Or when I go to Northern California and I see things like the winter jasmine, which a lot of people are sick of, but I think, oh, that's so great when it's blooming in April. Hmm. What does it smell like? Can I analyze that? Can I share that? And what about for people who can't smell? Or what about for people who can't see? You know, there's so many reasons to get into scent, and not a whole lot about it. Yeah. And it's interesting because there really are not that many. I can think of um, 
that famous book 20, 30 years ago, The (laughs) The Fragrant Year. And maybe Diane Ackerman's The Natural History of the Senses gets into it. But it was very, uh, really compelling to me, just from the get-go with the title. But then just this idea of exploring just how complex fragrance is and scent is for us as humans, the different ways in which we use it, and then uh, the different ways in which plants are employing it and deploying it in order to attract pollinators, repel predators, you know, all these different different things that it's being used for. It is such a layered and complex topic. And so it was really fun to dive into the book. And just a, a quick note on Ellen. I couldn't agree with you more. I've been following her for some time on Instagram. And I just, her images are so rich and evocative and very three-dimensional despite that scanning technology, there's great depth and texture that you get in in the flowers. And if you know, not even just flowers, flowers and foliage and the way she combines them. And if you know the plants she's working with and you know they're fragrant, you kind of put that in your head when you're looking at them. Yes. And as you're saying that, I'm thinking, I'm, I guess I just want to say, well, two things. One is that there's photographs of gardens in the book, too. Mm-hmm. So there's the, the scans, which are hard to describe. But everybody can do it if they have a home scanner or even a, a all-in-one machine. You just leave the top open. Mm. You don't close the top of the scanner. And some scanners, you can take the top right off. And you lay some flowers down. And in a dimly lit room, it doesn't even have to be that dark, and the background will come out black. Mm. And then for this book, Ellen figured out ways to use light to make color backgrounds. So some of the backgrounds are plants. They're almost like botanical drawings or herbarium specimens. Mm -hmm. They're isolated. And she puts sometimes some plants together that are blooming at the same time or have a similar fragrance. Or sometimes we just feature a single plant on a background that's either black or color. (laughs) So I'm trying to give people an idea of what it's like. Yeah. And so that gets us right into how did you structure the book? How did you determine uh, how it would be put together? And as you say, you include, you know, as you're talking about the different sections or as you are in the different sections of the books, we get nice photographs by you of plants in context. And then you will get uh, kind of not consistently, but you will get combinations of insight, close up, and then the scans, depending on what I think came out the best for you when you went to do the layout. How did you put together the sections of the book? It was really hard. (laughs) I bet, yeah. I was doing so much investigation and talking to people who make perfume and fragrant companies and, and realizing that a lot of the perfume companies have lists of categories and sometimes the categories are silly you know like uh, sunshine or something Uh, so that's really very helpful but just to help organize the book I came up with 12 categories that I could push the plants into so I could have an encyclopedic section and have some way of organizing sense because how do you do it I guess you could do it 
by months, but then winter would be very dull uh, or compared to spring. So I do have these 12 categories. And the 12 categories, which I'd like to actually have you walk us through, I want to note how incredibly good, I want to say good, you were about being very clear that scent is so subjective. There are these categories and some universal ideas about, you know, which come from both, I I kept thinking of coffee roasters and sommeliers and then perfumery uh, people and this idea of like top notes and middle notes and, and the base notes of a scent and the way you walk us through those, but that for everybody, it will come a little differently just because of who we are and how we're built and what we smell. And I found that fascinating. And you were really clear on that all the way through. Oh, thanks. Uh, I think there there are some things that we can say smell like something. Uh, coffee beans smell like coffee beans. <laughs> right. And we can say that dianthus, pinks, smell like clove. And they kind of smell like clove to everyone because they have a chemical, which is eugenol, a chemical compound in them. It's the same chemical compound that's in actual cloves. So things that smell like clove often have that compound. And in the book, I would have the primary scent that I thought that I imagined, mm-hmm. and then the secondary scents. Uh, and some plants smell like something or one or two things, but some flowers smell like, I don't know, eight things. And it was strange. And some of those plants that smelled like the most things a lot of people don't like, interestingly enough. But I included ones that people don't like too. Yeah. And all, I mean, all of this was really fascinating. I was reading this in sort of over the course of multiple days, of course, and I was sharing it back and forth with my partner, uh, John Whittlesey, who's a plantsman. And it was fun for us to then think, oh, I got to, we're going to run out and check that salvia and its stem and see like what we pick up. And I think of myself as very attuned to sense. And so a lot of this wasn't new, but it definitely made me far more curious. And it made me um, want to be much more observant with the complexity of the different smells and try and, you know, characterize what different notes I was picking up especially over time. And I loved how you brought that out, that a flower will smell one way or foliage will smell one way when it's fresh and then as it ages and then after it's been pollinated and then, you know, even in its decay, uh, there will be different scents as well as through the course of a day and a season, it will smell differently. Yes, that's especially as you were saying that I was thinking and after five o'clock. Right. Because a, a <laughs> lot of things change at, after five o'clock. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. In his newest book, The Sensual Garden, Ken Drews writes that his mission was to reveal a world of sensory experience to surprise and delight every gardener, to take on a wholly original survey of botanical fragrance, how to sample it, design for it, revel in it, and even capture it. We'll be right back with more of our conversation with plantsman Ken Drews. Stay with us. It's Jennifer. Scent, 
and memory, and gardens and memory, and season. That's what's in my mind this time of year as we explore this concept of scent in the garden with Ken Drews. In his book and in our conversation, Ken notes that the same part of the brain that stores memory is also the part that registers scent. So it is that I smell privet and I think of my grandmother's funny dislike of it, and I think of childhood summers, mosquito-bitten, barefooted, and sunburned on the beaches of Little Compton, Rhode Island. I smell roses and I think of my mother's perfume, though she is 20 years past now. And of course, this is a nostalgic time of year, isn't it? Full of warm, saturated scents of ritual. In the kitchen as we bake and cook, and even in the garden, as we craft arrangements and centerpieces, wreaths and swags, and even offerings to one another born of greenery. Savor these scents, these memories, and the place you cultivate and that partners you in your days as surely as any human. As we tend toward the winter solstice and the final full moon of this calendar year and this calendar decade, as we mark our own next growth rings, may you hold the value of your garden and this practice high and bright for all to see. Now, back to our conversation with Ken Drews. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back from a break to finish our conversation with Ken Drews about his process and purpose in writing his most recent book, The Sensual Garden, about the beautiful complexities to be enjoyed in the fragrances produced by the plants in our gardens. As we come back, he's describing the 12 categories of scent types that he goes through in the book and which he has arranged alphabetically. Uh, I've arranged them alphabetically just because you got to arrange them somehow. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the first one I have is animalic, which is things that have sort of an animal fragrance, like uh, skunk cabbage, which smells like skunk and and musk and uh, rotting flesh, putrid things. Uh, not so pleasant, but always interesting, I must say. And animalic is a word that you find in perfumery, even though you can probably not even find it in spell check. So that's the first category. Then I have balsamic resinous fragrances. And uh, it's not that they smell like vinegar. It's that the vinegar smells like the balsamic resinous fragrances. And those are things like coconut and burned sugar and maple syrup and vanilla. Yeah. Then I have a kind of catch-all for everything else, uh, but alphabetically I call it floral sweet. And that's where things like primroses are, because primrose, the primrose primula veris, the cowslip to me smells like butter. And it's just sweet. I wanted to say a little bit of linen on the line. But those are the things that smell like candy or honeysuckle. And daylily, if you've ever smelled yellow daylilies, especially yellow ones, they just have a wonderful, light, sweet, floral fragrance. And then I have forest. And in that section, I have things like cedar and 
oak moss and patchouli, the woodland floor, the smell of earth, pine. Then comes fruity, and the fruity smells are could be tart or ones that like apricot and lemon and citronella and berry and fig and banana and grape soda, like a lot of bearded iris smell to me just like grape soda. Yeah, yeah. Then there's the heavy scent, and those are things like oriental lily and the winter jasmine, orange blossoms, uh, the lush, intense, creamy, thick, rich fragrances, sometimes a little overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Then I have herbal green, which are things that smell kind of like green peas or when you take a stem of a juicy plant and snap it and smell it and uh, a lot of the herbs freshly cut grass goes there new mown hay they're lively fragrances and then I have honey and a lot of plants smell like honey and bees love them and uh, some things like privet if you've ever smelled privet blooming it, it's honey but then it goes kind of in a direction that's not all so wonderful and it has kind of a bleachy smell but uh, a lot of things have a honey fragrance then there's something called indole which is a molecular compound that's in a lot of perfumes intentionally and it's on a lot of plants and if you just smelled indole itself it smells kind of like moss balls mm. it's not a very nice smell but in flowers, if you smell something wonderful, if you think about mothballs, sort of in the end of smelling it, you'll smell a little bit of mothballs. And uh, if you've ever grown paper white narcissus, some people grow them and have to give them their own room because they don't like the fragrance, and that's indole. So those are the indolic fragrances. And then I have medicinal fragrances, which are the acrid and biting and menthol, metallic smells. Um, chrysanthemum has a kind of medicinal smell. Mm -hmm. Sage does too. Eucalyptus, <laughs> you know about that. Yeah, <laughs> Artemisia. Yeah. Then I have the rose fragrances. And uh, rose, of course, you could do eight books on rose fragrance. Right. But I, I just have some examples of modern rose fragrances and old rose fragrances, and you mentioned the rose earlier. Well, there are some people who are breeding for fragrance again. Uh, Tom Carruth in Los Angeles, uh, he's been breeding for fragrance. He has one called Sentimental, S-C-E-N-T, and he did one called Julia Child that has a wonderful anise fragrance. Yeah. And then comes spice, and spices are the like the clove and the curry, and cinnamon and pepper smells, nutmeg and ginger smell, uh, kind of sharp smells, uh, geranium, things like that. So those are my long descriptions of my 12 categories. And what, what comes out in you just walking us through this is how many plants come to mind, right, as you are, are walking us through this? Like I can see them as you're describing them. But also it is this idea of the layers of them brings us to the point of how much attention can be paid to this and it requires a little bit of a practice. So walk listeners through or describe for listeners how you recommend we actually 
do this exercise? How do we smell if our if if we would like to go out into the garden and experience these layers you just described for us, Ken? Ah, well, that back to that example with the actress and the roses. <laughs> uh, people often will take a long, deep gulp of fragrance and inhalation, and that's not really the best way to sample scents. Uh, the better way is to take little sniffs, and I guess it would be like taking sips of wine mm-hmm. or sips of anything. So little short sniffs, because if you take that long gulp, and especially if you're smelling a lot of things, you become accustomed to it and you no longer can smell it, especially if it's the same thing. And it actually does dull your the nerves in your nose if you do that. You have to kind of reset it to start smelling things again, either by going away or uh, perfumers often smell the inside, the crook of their elbows because they're, they're accustomed to their own scent and it resets the olfactory nerves. Uh, people used to carry little jars of coffee beans to reset their, their senses when they wanted to sample a lot of plants. But if you do little sniffs, then you can continue to do it. Yeah. And the other, I think, piece of advice you give, if not, I think it is right in that section, um, but it's somewhere, is also to close your eyes. And it's funny, as a mother, I often would do that with my children's food, is I would close my eyes to smell it to make sure everything was good, because I trusted my nose to know what was happening with the food and to make sure everything was good. It's funny that you said that because I didn't, I didn't say it, but I think I always close my eyes yeah, <laughs> now that yeah. you mentioned it. Yeah. And because you get something very different and you do describe this in the way scent is accentuated maybe when we close our eyes or for people who don't have sight or mm. who have limited sight, their scent sense becomes far more important and and highlighted, if not stronger. Well, we want to concentrate and we want to shut out other things, Mm -hmm. even light and color, uh, if not sound, but uh, just just to concentrate more. That's that's funny. I'm thanking you for reminding me that I wrote that. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's definitely there. And the interesting aspect of that, both the animalic and the indolic aspect to scent, is so interesting to me because it is so true. And it will read differently for different people. But, for instance, I am not a fan of the – um, winter hyacinth, the you know the big ones. Partly that's an association, so that pulls us into the memory thing because they were in bloom when I was uh, deep into um, morning sickness with my first child in oh. Seattle, and so I just associate them. But they do have that heaviness of scent, and it almost can turn in its overwhelming nature, in its thickness of sweet, to the cloying and then almost to the putrid, um, which is what my grandmother got from privet, which she thought smelled like cat urine. And other people I know think um, paper white narcissus smells like cat urine. Mm -hmm. And so both the memory and the individual chemistry of smell comes out in, in that those two categories, the animalic and the indolic, I think. 
definitely. That that's uh, very interesting what you said, and it that does happen. Those connections. Mm -hmm. uh, it happens sometimes when you if there's a plant when you're if there's a food when you're a kid that you really love, and then you eat too much of it and get sick, and then you never want to see that food again, even though it used to be a favorite. Hyacinth seems to be one of those plants that people really react strongly to. And when I was writing what hyacinth smelled like, I had indole as the primary scent, and then lilac, mothballs, honey, grass, chocolate, vanilla, and spice. They're so, I like the smell, but it is a heavy, complex smell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that you did a wonderful job of relaying the chemical process of how we smell, what it triggers in our brains in different areas, and why it's so associated with memory, why a scent can transport us back, for better or worse, to a, a place, a person, a, a moment in time. It's very powerful. Well, the part of the brain that registers fragrance is the same part of the brain where memories are stored. So it's likely that we're making that connection electronically <laughs> in our brains, physically. So the the hyacinth and this idea of both complexity of scent and attributes of scent in different plants brings me to how in heaven did you pick your plants? Because as you, you note, there's no way you could get them all. I selected things that were favorites that I've had as favorites for many years and never really jotted them down or recorded what they were. Mm -hmm. And then I would just search for some things in my garden and in other gardens and other parts of the country. M my garden, when I started here on the two and a half acres, it was, it was like an outdoor studio. So I could take photographs of the plants I wanted to take photographs of without, without traveling. Or I don't mind being places. It's airports. I don't like mm -hmm and heavy equipment. So having an outdoor studio, I, you know, I guess it's my modern Monet nod of having a garden that can inspire me and where I can just go outside and take a picture, which I do all the time. Mm -hmm. And you, you create, so in your encyclopedia, I mean, there it's, it's vast and in each plant description, we get photos and we also get sometimes memories from you. And then we also get, you know, how to use it and a little bit of how to care for it and, you know, which part is fragrant. And there are so many fragrant plants and there were so many good ones in here that included uh, fragrant stems and fragrant wood, as well as fragrant foliage, and how you got different scents from them. And this was one of the the elements that made me think I got to get out in the garden and go like scratch some bark and pick these and smell them in a different way than I might might have otherwise. Yes. <laughs> so let's go. So in the in the encyclopedia part of the book, you do organize plants by the primary category that you've put them in. Um, and maybe you could pick two or three that you that come to mind for you right now or that you just turn to and and describe them for listeners. Oh, that's, that, that's challenging. 
animalic. Uh, I would say ginkgo, as I mentioned, skunk cabbage, which uh, you have a Western skunk cabbage, Lysicaton, that I really love. It's so beautiful. And the foliage has a very skunky smell, which I don't really mind. Uh, fritillaria, some, some people try to cut fritillaria as a cut flower and it, it becomes very stinky. It has a kind of foxy smell. That's how they describe it. Yeah. And even the bulb has that scent. Yeah. Yeah. The balsamic resinous fragrances, uh, something that's hap- about just about to happen right now in my garden is the katsura tree, Cercidophyllum. Oh, yeah. And when the leaves turn yellow on that and then they begin to drop, they give off a kind of a caramel fragrance. When I have visitors to the garden at this time of year, they stop and say, where's cotton candy? Right, right. And they stop in their tracks. Yeah, it's a beautiful, warm scent, which to me is um, kind of uh, brown sugar as well as burnt sugar. Mm. It's a it's a lovely, warm fall scent, and it's perfect, yeah. Uh, the forest fragrances, of course, uh, there's all the conifers. And one that I really love is Abe's Concolor, the Concolor fir. Mm-hmm. If you take a a needle of that and snap it, it smells exactly like orange rind. I love that. Wow. Okay. See, now I'm going to go have to try that, Ken. Uh, oh, do you have that plant? I think I can find it. Yeah. I'm sure you can. It's, it, it used to be a popular holiday, Christmas tree. Yeah. Not as much now, but it's a beautiful shrub. Uh, the floral sweet, there's lily of the valley, things like that, and mock orange. And you have a native mock orange. I think it's Philadelphia's... Louisia? Louisiae? Uh-huh. Louisiae, yeah, yeah. Uh, fruity, uh, right now in front of me are two fruits of Buddha's hand. <sighs> which oh, I know you you guys in California, citrus is like something you grow here. It's right. the most precious thing. Right. We actually have one hardy citrus that I grow in my garden that gets to almost 10 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. And I'm looking at the fruits right now out the window. Mm. Uh, but the Buddha's hand, when they're green, they smell like old roses and then they get ripened and they, they fill up the entire room with the most wonderful fragrance and they, there's no juice in them. So you either grow them to use the rind for candying or something like that, but I grow them to smell the fruits. Heavy ones, we mentioned several, the ones you didn't like, <laughs> like the Hyacinth. <laughs> well, and it's uh, funny because I love privet. My grandmother didn't love privet, oh, but no, I, I love, I, I love. stand it. Right? So <laughs> it's this kind of, there's, there are funny conversations about fragrance, yeah. But you guys can grow gardenias. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's certainly a quintessential heavy fragrance. Mm-hmm. Herbal green, well, there's so many things. There's anise hyssop, the uh, do you say agastache or agastache, or what do you say? I say agastache, but again, it's one of those things you're like, just don't say it. Just tell me. <laughs> just say anisysip. I don't know. <laughs> I think that both are acceptable. I, I think so. And there's uh, bee balm, Minarda, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of has a fruity oregano fragrance. And, you know, there's so many herbs that are fragrant. The honey things, there's like sweet alyssum, the annual well, maybe that's not annual for you. I'm not sure. It does. But it goes on and on here if we don't have a hard, hard freeze. But yeah. If it gets too hot, which it doesn't either. Yeah, exactly. 
Uh, that has an incredible honey smell. And along the river here are American linden trees, uh, Tilia americana. And when they're blooming, which is not very often, the whole garden is just, it's wonderfully overwhelmed for just about two weeks with a honey smell. That's a great smell. The indolic, we happen to talk about those, a lot of daffodils and paper white narcissus. And actually, indole is in every jasmine. So some of those people who don't like that winter jasmine and think, you know, it's it's too much, it's indole. Yeah. Yeah, that was really an interesting exploration for me. Those were all new sort of aspects of of scent that I, you you kind of like once you read it in your book and then you're like, oh, that's it. So you you know it's there. You just don't know what it is. And mm -hmm. that was really that was really fun to learn. It was surprising to me too, yeah. <laughs> and that yeah. was something I was. What is it? And then I did discover what it was. Uh, the medicinal plants. There's artemisia. Um, do you ever grow pycnanthemum? Have you heard of pycnanthemum? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have a native mountain mint out here as well. And your description of picking that and just breathing it in as a, a kind of wake up uh, was, was beautiful. And the pycnanthemums are just lovely. They sure are. And underused, if I do say so myself. I agree. And they're fantastic pollinator plants. Um, and yeah, my, my partner has big pollinator beds and he has one whole one called the Mint Mountain. And he has pycnanthemum is at the end of one of these big beds. Well, I've grown a couple of different ones. And I started out with pycnanthemum uticum, which is about the most common. And frankly, it's the prettiest one mm -hmm. <laughs> after mm -hmm. growing all the different ones. Yeah. Um, then the roses, I have an old rose in the garden here called Petite de Hollande, mm -hmm. which is, uh, I guess it's little of Holland. Um, and that's an old centifolia from around 1720. And it's the most incredible smell. It's just, it is hard to describe the old rose fragrance. It's kind of like powder, almost like baby powder with spice. Mm -hmm. But it's it's the rose water smell. It's if you've ever smelled rose water, and almost everyone has, it's that smell, and it is used for perfume and actually for rose water too. Yeah. But that smell is just too much. Mm -hmm. And then the the late David Austin created so many roses, English shrub roses, and he was after fragrance. He wanted to bring fragrance back when he started in the I guess the late forties. Yeah. And so God love him. He was very successful at it, to which we should all uh, express gratitude. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And then the spice. And uh, I grow allspice, which is pimenta. I have allspice and bay rum are both versions of a West Indian plant called uh, pimenta. Mm. And it's an evergreen and also, I don't know anyone who grows it, but they should. It's a beautiful evergreen. And uh, it's not, you know, it's subtropical, but I think that you might be able to grow it in a protected spot. Uh, I love the things that smell like clove. There's buffalo currant or clove currant, a kind of ribes that has flowers early in the spring. A lot of the viburnums have a kind of clove fragrance, a spicy fragrance, and daphnes. And surprising to me, especially the new purple coneflower hybrids, a lot of them are fragrant. 
I did not know this, and I made a note of it when I read it in the book and thought, I got to go look for these because that, that is not a plant I associate a fragrance with. There's one I have that is relatively new. It's a white one, and it's called Fragrant Angel. So I guess I guess it knows what it is, and it does it does smell. But uh, to me, that's they they kind of smell like cinnamon and oranges. Uh, it's it's not overwhelming. It's a light fragrance, but it, a lot of those colorful ones are fragrant. So there are some examples. Is there anything else you'd like to add? It's just a, a pleasure to speak with you, and I, I love your approach to gardening because to me it's, I don't want to say religion, but it's kind of my religion, nature, and uh, I feel subservient, and yeah. uh, these days humans seem to think that humans are the only things that are worthy of anything, and I, I think we're pretty low on the list. It has been an honor to have you on the program. Thank you so much for your generous sharing over all of these books. And um, yeah, thank you for being a guest. Oh, it's my pleasure. Ken Drews is a well-known horticulturalist, an award-winning author and photographer. His books range from shade gardens to naturalist gardens, from propagating plants to combining plants. Today, he joined us to talk about his 20th book, The Sensual Garden, beautifully illustrated with evocative images by Ellen Hoverkamp, as well as photographs by Ken himself. There are so many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Join us next week in another conversation that takes us to a dreaming, planning, plotting world, perfect for winter dormancy and rooting, when we're joined by floral artist Amy Merrick, talking with us about her garden life journey and the quasi-life journal for her and instructional for us that is her new book, on Flowers, Lessons from an Accidental Florist, celebrating the delights of humble, luxurious, everyday flowers. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. To see the beauty and joy and delight of Ken Drews's garden and photography, as well as the amazing compositions of Ellen Hoverkamp, capturing many of these scented flowers and foliage, head over to cultivatingplace.com this week. That's cultivatingplace.com. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Executive producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.